Hey guys, welcome to Launchpad Podcast. Before we get started, we got to do a little bit of that business. Remember, hit like and subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts. Leave those likes and reviews. Tell your friends about us. You having a good time listening to the Launchpad Podcast? Share it on Twitter. Share it on social media, Facebook, SoundCloud, whatever you're listening on. Please leave those likes, leave those reviews. Today we're talking to the awesome Ron Randall. This guy is a comic artist, writer, creator. He does it all. But he's done some of the biggest titles. He's done Batman, Superman, Aliens, Predators, Star Wars. He has done so much, but he has his own project, Trekker. And he's doing a new season of Trekker right now, trying to get a new run off the ground. He's got a Kickstarter going. It is TrekkerKickstarter.com. If you're interested in Trekker, if you're already a fan of Trekker, go check it out. Go support Rod Randall and his project. If you're not, hey, Go check out Trekker. Some of the issues are free online as a webcomic. It's been going on for a while, and it's a really cool space sci-fi adventure, kind of like Firefly, kind of like that Buck Rogers vibe. Very space opera. Super fun. Worth checking out. Anyway, today we get to sit down with this amazing comic creator and just talk sci-fi, man. Super good time. We got to do some shout-outs. Start with Autumn's Ghost hitting us up on Instagram, showing us some love. I was born to be a samurai. Thanks, dude, for all your likes and replies. We really appreciate it. AJ Dana, thanks for following us, dude. We came to see you. Now you're listening to us. We really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Ariel, all the people over at the Hillcrest Center for the Arts, thank you so much. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our Evil Dead, the musical episode, please do. Those people are awesome. They've been such great supporters. Thank you so, so, so much. Slasher Pod, you were skeptical to come give us a follow, but hey, we really appreciate it, you guys. Hydra Hats, Tasha, thank you so much. I miss you and Chris. I can't wait to hear what you guys think of Godzilla coming out this weekend. Creepy Horror Girl, thanks for the follow. Spark of Madness Podcast. Dude, my buddy Ben from high school has a podcast. It's super hilarious. They do movie reviews. They watch some really cool movies. Spark of Madness gets a shout out. Tales of the Con, repping some amazing comic books. This podcast gave a shout out to one of my favorite comic books. Kill Six Billion Demons, so mad love to Tales with the Con. Neighborhood Comics in Savannah, super neat to go down there, meet you guys, hope your book club goes well. If you are in Savannah, check out Neighborhood Comics. It's a great little shop, just open, super cool. Ryan Dempsey, what's up, dude? Buddy from work, into some super cool stuff, has some great knowledge of comics, always has badass shirts on. Ryan Dempsey, thanks for listening, thanks for following. Schraderopolis, the baby badass creator. Always love hearing from you on Instagram. Thanks, man. Brian Ivanhoe, one of the OGs. Thank you, dude. If I didn't mention your name, I'm so sorry I missed you. Hit me up on Instagram or on Twitter. Hit us up on Facebook. Let us know what's going on at Launchpad Pod and hit us up on our website, launchpadpod.com. Guys, that's enough of that. Let's get on with the show. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. We have a All right, welcome to the Launchpad Podcast. I'm Aaron. I'm Matt. Matt, we got a special guest coming to the Launchpad today. Who do we have? We have none other than the legendary artist, Ron Randall, and I'm actually a big fan of his from way back. I'm very excited to speak with him today. Welcome to the podcast, Ron. Thanks very much, guys. It's great to be with you. Now, Ron, you have done tons of stuff. Not only are you an artist, but you write, you you draw, you pencil. You, you, I mean, you do almost everything, but you've worked on, you name it, Sergeant Rock, 
You've done Swamp Thing with Alan Moore. You did a Dungeons and Dragons book, which I'm yes. a huge D&D player, so I was pumped <laughs> to see that. I knew I you mean, would be excited about that one, Ruben. <laughs> Aliens, Predator, Star Wars, all the DC big heavies, the Batmans, the Supermans, the Wonder Womans, the Catwomans. I mean, we could go on and on. You did Venom, Separation Anxiety, which is one of my favorite series. I mean, you were just just a man who has done everything. We don't even know where to start, but one of the <laughs> things on your personal projects, you do a series called Trekker, which is yours. You you write this thing, you draw this thing, you let us read some of it. Yeah, let's start there. So tell us a little bit about Trekker. What is the pitch to our audience? Can you tell us what, uh, what Trekker is? Sure. The shortest summary I can give is Trekker is a science fiction series about a young woman who's a bounty hunter. That sort of gets across some of the some of the overall flavor, the subgenre would sort of be, I guess, sci-fi western. Mm-hmm. The premise of the series is she's a young woman. The story starts out with a, she's got a very narrow focus. <laughs> she shoots people. She gets paid for it. It's a very convenient <laughs> arrangement. Uh, her job isn't easy, but at least it's straightforward. Yeah. And she would be happy if things just stayed that way. Uh, but, but you know, life has this way of cracking us all open uh, and pulling us out of our comfort zone so to speak. And so the, the series is really a, a long-form journey of, of self-discovery and of destiny for this young woman. I just try to disguise it as a series of self-contained action-adventure stories with explosions, crash landings on the swamp planets and spaceships. <laughs> it's super fun, man. And how, how long has it been running? It depends on how you want to score it. I mean, I created the character back in like 1986, uh-huh. and she had her own series for a while. Uh, and, and then I was working on it sort of spottily, sporadically for, for a, a number of more years. Then I set the whole project on, on hold for about a dozen years because I was trying to tell, as I sort of described it, this sort of ongoing story where the, the stories are each self-contained, but if you link them together, you're, you're tracing the gradual arc, the evolution of this character and the, the series and the world gets more complicated and things expand as, over time. And to have to keep interrupting that story was, was frustrating. It didn't serve the series well or the readers or anybody. So I put it on hold until I could find a way to get back to it in a sustained, ongoing way until I get to the end of the journey. So that's where I'm at now. So I, I returned to it uh, in about eight years ago when I when I realized I could make a webcomic and get all the stories uh, at least back into the public eye to an extent that way and then found a way to get it back into print. So it's uh, it's been my ongoing task steadily since then. And this has been an interesting story as far as publishing-wise because – if I'm not mistaken, it started in Dark Horse Presents, right? That's right, yeah. And that was like an early issue of Dark Horse Presents, and it lived there for a while, and then it became its own beast. And now, it, it, I mean, it was, it was creator-owned from the start. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. If you want a quick genesis of the series, I, I was um, working regularly for DC Comics back in, like, the summer of 85, 86, and I had just moved back to Portland, Oregon, my hometown. I'd been living in New Jersey and getting myself connected enough at DC and Marvel that I could, you know, transport myself back to my <laughs> the Pacific Northwest uh, and work long distance for the companies. But I was at a local comic convention here in town. Mike Richardson and Randy Stradley came up to me at the show and introduced themselves. They were starting a little company, that, you know, as they described it, a small black and white company, but they wanted to get some professionals to come and work for them. And they offered me a chance to create a series of my own for them. So uh, I said, I'll never get the opportunity to do this again. Just, you know, sort of a creative blank check. <laughs> yeah. I just created what at the time I considered to be my dream project. And I must have done a pretty good job, at least on my own terms, 
because here I am a million years later and I'm still super excited to be working on Trekker. Is that an idea that you had on the back burner when they approached you and said you could do your own thing? Or is that something you're like, oh, no, I have to come up with an idea now? Absolutely not. It was not on my I, I never thought I'd have the opportunity to do something like that. But what I found out was when I when I started asking myself what would be my dream project, it didn't take me long to come up with at least the the basic beginning elements. I mean, I've always loved science fiction, so I knew I want. And, and back then, there were not many opportunities to do, you know, a straight ahead sci-fi comic. They they weren't around back then. I wanted a female lead character for a few reasons we can get it into or not. There weren't many of those around back then, but I just thought that was an intriguing idea. This dark, gritty sort of Blade Runnery sort of initial setting of the series, but having the the protagonist be be a, a young female uh, character. I, I thought that was a cool. There was a certain energy to that that seemed to work for the creator in me. <laughs> Mercy St. Clair is is the name of this this bounty hunter. She's a total badass. I mean, you can see so many different characters. Definitely a lot of Harrison Ford vibes. You know, like you said, Blade Runner. I got here. I got Han Solo in there. You know, a lot of these great, uh, strong sci-fi sort of influences. And then she's her own character. And one of the things I want to touch on about her is you have these amazing costume designs man you really play with them in in the in the show and I, I think you have a little costume designer in you what is your inspiration and and what do you like about getting to do so many different costume designs for your character oh that's a that's a really good question I don't know where it all comes from I mean I've got a lot of art influences in my background everything an artist sort of looks at from the time you're a kid up through your life sort of impresses itself I believe on some some little part of your imagination and just like lur- lurks around there and comes bubbling out from your from your subconscious in one way or another. So the way I approach it is when I'm going to design an outfit for for Mercy or uh, Molly, her, her girlfriend, or one of the other characters in the series, is I I, hmm, I just sort of have a blank sheet of paper and start doodling a, a figure, sketching in a rough, you know, uh, outline for the figure, and then just start draping it, you know, putting on some kind of a jacket and then mucking around with the overall silhouette shapes of the, those forms and then going in and working on some of the details. And I just play around with it. And I'm, I'm just, it's really very intuitive. When I come up with something that says, yeah, that feels like that character. So, so, so it's like, I guess it is kind of what a costume designer does for, for movies, right? They, yeah. they try to come up with a costume that somehow summons up something about the energy or the vibe of that character. So I, I try to hit that. And I've lived with these characters in my brain and in my guts for so many years now that I think I have a pretty good feel for their their personalities, their sense of style and taste. Uh, Mercy tends to dress in a lot of black and white. <laughs> yeah, which which goes back to both the series of the original black and white comic, but also it was it was in, it was intentionally meant to sort of reflect her kind of her kind of basic worldview. You know, at the beginning of the series, she sees things as very black and white. <laughs> that that's not sustainable, but that's where she starts at. Uh, and it also just it has the advantage of being a really distinctive color scheme you know um right she tends she to pop out on the pages with those sort of stark bold patterns i try to create for her character the pages are really really fun and the, the design it's not just the costume but everything Aaron and i and, and our listeners as well we all love sci-fi right i think we're all part of that same the collective that just loves that genre but i feel that there are sometimes when you read something it either screams of something else and you're just reading <laughs> you know that artist's interpretation of the same look or the same feel or you see someone that is just like sci-fiing it up just to sci-fi it up. You know what I mean? Like the fifties, <laughs> the fifties were the best time for that because it hadn't been done before. But since mm-hmm. then, it's like when you overly make something the future or overly make something technology and sci-fi and look, 
look at this, look at this is different than what you're used to. It kind of takes you out of that story. But I feel that Trekker walks that impossibly thin line of <laughs> look at this world that is different from anything you've ever seen, but in such a well plotted out and, and illustrated way that you're not like, wait a minute, that's how they use transportation. It, you have to go back and be like, wait a minute, look at that ship. Wait a minute, look at that, you know, a uh, craft that they're using. It's it really from the costumes to the the wardrobe to the the settings to the vehicles. You really crafted this whole world. What influences you when you have to come up with a new thing for the Trekker universe? Well, well, I do go back to some of the sci-fi things that influenced me from when I was a little kid, like I was saying before, some of those early things. I mean, I, I fell in love with. I, I have a hard time explaining it, but I, but but I. But I can't deny it because it was such almost like a visceral impact it had on me. When I first saw uh, an old comic book, this is going to date me, but it was uh, I was flipping through the, the comic uh, rack at my local candy store <laughs> when I was like 12 years old. <laughs> and I saw, you know, I've been buying Superman comics and um, Legion of Superheroes and sort of the standard fare that a kid my age would find here in Portland, Oregon, at comic shops back then. But I saw this cover uh, that I, I'd never seen anything like it before. It was, uh, it was Flash Gordon number five. That came out through uh, King Comics, which was like became Gold Key Comics or something. I'm not sure about the publishing history there. But anyway, it was a drawing of Flash Gordon by Al Williamson, and it was gorgeous. It was he looked so cool. <laughs> he had on these. See if this describes a character you may recognize from the movies. He had on like these tight pants with a with a stripe down the side of them, cool leather boots, a black leather jacket, and he was holding a blaster. Mm-hmm. I could be describing Han Solo, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is Flash Gordon, who was designed by Alex Raymond back in like 1932, and it was drawn in 1965. The first drawing I saw was by this guy, Al Williamson. And I opened, I said, I've never seen an art like that. He looked, he looked fairly realistic, but but in this heightened sort of romanticism with a capital R, you know, like romantic art sort of art. He was idealized and yet very vital and alive. I can't describe it too well, but I had to pick up the book and I flipped through it. And the first page I see is a splash page of Dale and Flash and Dr. Zarkov. And they're wading through a swamp that has creeper branches all over it and scurrying, you know, lizards around there. And I was just lost. Uh, I was just lost in this world. And I said, I want to be that guy meaning I wanted to be Al Williamson. I wanted to be the guy uh -huh. that created worlds like that. So Al was a big influence on me. Where was the, What was the question I've already <laughs> Dude, we, no, don't even, we don't even care. We just want to hear you, you talk. You nailed it, yeah. <laughs> just talking about those influences, the though, because it's yeah, like... that's it. You're asking sort of about the overall approach to the, I guess, the sensibility of the world building or something. And, you know, one thing that, that affected and continues to inform every choice I make on Trekker is I want it to feel real and believable because the way I was trained by Joe Kubert, my mentor, the guy whose school I went to was you want to grab a reader and pull them into your story and not let them out. <laughs> um, and what you were just saying a little bit ago, I think it was Matt talking about how sometimes you're reading a story that's super sci-fi and all of a sudden you'll see some crazy technology and you sort of have to go back and retrofit it into your brain to make sure it works in that world. Yeah. And when you do that, you're not in the story anymore. You're, you're trying to deconstruct the uh, technology and stuff like that. I'm not about that. I'm about I'm a storyteller. I want you to start. I want you to care about Mercy St. Clair. <laughs> I want you to connect with her as a human being and want to and I want you to be on the journeys with her. And the extent that you're distracted from the reality of the world by something that doesn't seem like it fits in organically and is believable and has a sense of 
solidity and, and, and reality to it, that I'm not doing my job well. So I just, so that's, that's where I come from. I try to keep everything grounded in the sense of believability insofar as you can, when you're doing a story about a science fiction bounty hunter, you know, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> that's what my priority is, I guess. I mean, that's, it's perfect. It's, you know, telling the story and finding a world that it fits in. But since you brought it up, I, I want to talk a little bit about Flash Gordon as a, as a sci-fi property. He's one of the original like pulp heroes pulp sci-fi heroes mm -hmm. and it's very interesting because he is a borderline of maybe between like the sword and sandal dungeons and dragons world but put mm -hmm. into space with spaceships and that's a good I way mean, to he, say he, it he carries a scabbard to hold his blaster in it's it's basically it was so close to just the divergence of where the hobbit was going and then taking that to space and giving it this world. And, and it is a very different vibe. Earlier, you mentioned stuff like uh, Blade Runner, or if you look at something like Aliens, which all comes from that H.R. That Geiger world, mm -hmm. uh, such a different type of sci-fi. And, and like you said, I, I really like that idea of the romanticize. I mean, it is very Errol Flynn. You right. could see that as a, as a swashbuckler sci-fi. That, that really, to me, is, is such a unique genre because we don't see a lot of it. I mean, Firefly did it. Uh, the, the, that that whole show did it. Very few shows and movies get to play in that world, but I, I do think it's really neat. What what speaks to you about that kind of sci-fi, like a, a Flash Gordon, you know, the romanticized, the cowboy sci-fi, as opposed to the hard edge, uh, you know, the Matrix sci-fi, the Blade Runner sci-fi? There's a lot of stuff that works for me there. Largely, I think what it comes down to is um, if you if you put I guess uh, in some ways you can, I can see there's the, the spectrum of kind of stories you can have. Some are very cerebral, some are sort of really about high concept and abstract yeah. ideas, and some are about getting punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that I love so much about science fiction, and I think that one of the reasons I, I keep coming back to it and enjoying it in all these different shadings, is that it's such a flexible genre, at least the way I see it is, because you can have everything from Firefly, which is like a sci-fi Western, you know, basically, to you can have Aliens or, or or Predator, too, which I see is much more, they're really suspense horror movies, you know, with, yeah. within they're the sci-fi also. But and then you can have things like Dune or Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy, which are like these sprawling, expansive epics about the arc of humankind as it journeys through the stars and it journeys towards whatever destiny it has. So there's all these different subgenres and and Blade Running, which is you know a, a famously often referred to as a, a film noir story, a hard-boiled private eye, yeah. the uh, femme fatales, and and all that sort of stuff. But it all also works completely and 100% as science fiction to me. I I, I just and so when Trekker, I tried to, I tried to pack all of that into my Trekker's my one shot at having it all. So I want to be able to have <laughs> one issue feels more like a sci-fi western, and then another issue feels more like it's a space opera sort of thing. But anyway, so on the spectrum, I fall down more on the punch somebody in the face end of things. I, I, I think stories can get for me so far into the high concept stuff that it becomes again more like an abstract intellectual exercise to appreciate the story on that level. And I'd rather have people. Frank like Herbert had, did that. Yeah, Frank Herbert yeah. was hard with that. Yeah, he was. And sometimes I lost a little bit of the connection I had with his characters because it was so in his head. Yeah. Um, and and I'd rather have you in their hearts, <laughs> if that makes sense. Uh -huh. You know. So I I tend to tend to see the stories from ground level, from ground zero, and and that's why I want the reader to be. That's where the juice is for me in 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 caring about those characters and hating when they are hating you know and and loving when they love and, and i just think that's that's 
if I can communicate those experiences to the readers, if they can be on that kind of a journey, I think they'll keep coming back for the next the next issue. And the swashbuckly stuff like Errol Flynn, like you were saying, and Flash Gordon, I just think that it just raises my heart. <laughs> mm. um, at the same time, I, I you know I, I don't want the stories that I'm doing to be too. Uh, two-dimensional, too um, simplistic or or old-fashioned. I, I really try to straddle that line between comics that have a certain classic, you know, comic sensibility to them, but but also feel like they were they're they're being executed here in the 21st century too. <laughs> you're saying that you want, as a storyteller, whether you're writing or I guess as a visual artist, you want your audience to care about your characters. And in this one, you have not one but at least two female leads. I would love to talk to you about how it is writing a female lead versus a male lead. And I feel when you're writing, we're saying the word swashbuckling a lot. When you're writing a swashbuckling story, those are usually a male-dominated genre. And I love that you've kind of turned it at a slight angle here. And now we have Mercy St. Clair. And she's just badass. And you're right. You kind of fall in love with her, not necessarily as a woman, but as a character. How is it getting in her head, in in, in her mind, and her motivations, and, and even her love like uh, the, the love that she has for the other characters how was that for you to get in there well like i said i, I knew from the beginning i wanted to to have a, a female lead character in my world and i knew that i could be opening myself up to criticism because <laughs> i'm not a woman you know there, there's there's all this talk about the differences between you know men from mars women from venus that sort of stuff and i mean the, there is some validity to that but largely what i i felt the the, the best shot i had at trying to to do this right was to look at her as a human being, uh, and I just tried to make her, I tried to make her responses those that felt l- like a, a usually reasonable and sometimes unreasonable human being would respond because mm-hmm. she's like that. I mean, she's, I, I try, I, she's not a paragon. I think she's she's amazingly good at her job. Uh, she's got uh, a, a fierce heart, and she also screws up sometimes. <laughs> and she, you know, she can be a. Uh, flashes of anger and bad judgment and uh you know she she's she hates the idea about being emotionally vulnerable all that sort of stuff i borrowed some ideas i'd seen from from some strong female characters that i saw that were around in the culture at the time and then just took some of the stuff that i loved about you know heroes regardless of of gender and 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 i tried to put that together in a stew that came up with a character where i can say to myself yeah i don't think i'm gonna get bored with this character because i'm gonna be spending a lot of time with them who were some of those female characters that you were pulling from drawing from at that moment quite honestly from from a completely different genre and 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 medium i uh there was a tv show back in the 80s that you guys may or may not have heard of i don't know it was called cagney and lacy it was a cop show about two New York City detectives uh, that were women. And it was it won Emmys pretty much every year and stuff. But as far as I know, it was probably the first, I guess, what you call sort of cop buddy show that was two women characters. And one of them was, was a, a single woman. Her dad had been a cop and she was, she was this driven, obsessive police officer and her personal relationships were a disaster. <laughs> and the other one was... Um, was a, a married mom whose husband was like a plumber. And so these two women have very little in common with each other in, in a lot of ways, but they they were both really good cops and they worked great as teammates that complement each other. So I borrowed elements of, of things like that because they felt like recognizable human beings. Right. And, and I th- thought, well, I'm going to do that and make it a young female bounty hunter. <laughs> so uh, stuff like that's what I what I leaned on. And then I just sort of, like I said, did my best to try to write stories where I felt I think a person would probably spawn kind of like that here. And uh, 
and I would re- I've been really gratified to see how often. Um, initially, when I was doing this, when I'd go to conventions, there weren't very many women that would even be at the convention. But I would have a lot of guys come up to me and say, hey, thank you for making Trekker. This is about the only comic book that I can show to my girlfriend to try to get her to read comic books. And she likes it. So yeah, I felt interesting. I felt I must. I did the job reasonably well. I felt very proud of that. I love comics, man, because you can explore so much of it. Hearing you talk about it from you know a creator standpoint of telling, wanting to tell those stories and listening to your inspirations. I've never seen Cagney and Lacey, but I know what it is. And I wonder when they started making that show, was it a storyteller or probably storytellers who just wanted to tell the story that was in their head, or were they trying to reach a certain demographic? So that makes me wonder when you're writing Trekker and you make uh, strong female leads in that that book, are as you're creating that world, whether it's at the very beginning or even today when you're creating new content, are you thinking, how do I phrase this? Are you thinking of how the audience will respond to what you create or are you just putting on the page what you need to put on the page to tell the story? Yeah, it's it's the latter. It, it, it really is. Uh, I... Um, I love my audience. I am, you know, I am incredibly grateful to them because uh, we'll probably get into this in a little bit. But I'm, I'm using Kickstarter to fund the Trekker stories now, which means the books do not happen without readers there. Um, but I feel that the best way I can serve them is to tell the the next Trekker story, the one that's sort of. I've got the whole series basically outlined, formatted in my uh, in my in my head and on paper too. And I need to stick on that journey. Uh, you know, I set this thing up a long time ago and put a lot of elements um, in the field, uh, planted a lot of seeds for stories that are going to, um, um, you know, come to fruition <laughs> okay. uh, as we go on. So I pretty much know the beats of where we're going. And uh, I, I'm not in a hurry to get to the end because I'm loving the journey. But at the same time, I don't want to I don't want there to be um, any flab <laughs> in getting there. I don't want to waste any time getting there either. So uh, I, I, I think the best thing I can do is just tell the, tell the story that I, that I intend to, to, to tell. Um, and this goes back to when I created the series. Like I said, Dark Horse asked me what I wanted to do. And they didn't ask me to pitch them a series that they thought that they could sell or that would be commercial, uh, which I wouldn't know how to do anyway. Um, I just said, what would I want to do? You know, I just, I, I just said, if, if I can get something that I feel passionate about and believe in, I can't be the only person on, on the planet that will, <laughs> that would think that. So it was, you know, commercial was a very naive stance and, and I've, <laughs> I've never been that much of a <laughs> marketer or a salesperson or business person. I just, I just, tried <laughs> to, I just wanted to create a story that I would, that I thought was cool. That, that's the, and I, I, that's, ex, that has been my MO from the very beginning. Every time I am getting ready to do the next Trekker story, I say, okay, this is where we've taken the characters from the beginning of the last issue, uh, to where it ended. What's the next step and what's right. a cool way and what's a cool way to get there. Um, you know, and, and I do sort of, I really enjoy that sort of shifting from one sort of subgenre, like I was saying before, to another one. It keeps the stories a little bit fresh for me. It gives the readers a slightly different visual, um, visual texture, or whatever, for for the next story. And hopefully, that also sort of underscores overall the the arc of the the, the evolving arc of the journey too. So, um, no. so yeah, I, 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 it's very selfish. <laughs> I'm trying to amuse myself. <laughs> but it works, though, and you get to tell all these different stories. And, and, and since you mentioned it, I, I want to talk about some of the other s- 
stuff you've worked on. And since you mentioned Dark Horse, the the aliens and the Predator, you've worked on both these characters. And and I know Matt has has a, a big piece about some of the Predator stuff you've worked on. But I want to start with working on a character like a Xenomorph or a Predator. They're very complicated characters. Oh, what, yeah. what are some of the complications <laughs> you had when trying to design and draw these these characters? The designs are already done, right? I mean, uh, it was based on those movies yeah. for Aliens and Predators. So in one way, the heavy lifting was already done. It, it was great. There were amazing designs that were just really involved and complicated. So what I had to do was fill several pages of in the sketchbook, you know, going through um, the, the stills that they provided me from the, because this is, I think this was before I even had a VHS machine or whatever. So there wasn't really a, a, an easy way to access the movies and do a lot of freeze framing sort of stuff. I filled pages in my sketchbook, drawing the predator from different angles and trying to figure out how the hell that crazy jaw thing works. And <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's basically just doing your homework really as an artist, it's the same process as you do the first time you draw a story that has a motorcycle in it. You know, you don't know, not the <laughs> but you have to you have to go there and you have to sort of break it down to the basic, you know, shapes and components that make it. And and in the case of something organic, like you're drawing a, a camel or a predator or an alien, you come up with the basic shapes and you figure out how they how they will move around. You try to understand the, the mechanics of motion that that creature or or object has. Um, it's just it's just part of the it's doing the homework you have to do. What's harder to draw, the predator or the alien? It would be the alien because I've drawn the predator more. I did. I worked on basically three predator miniseries, so that character is pretty well in my head now. In fact, I was, <laughs> I was dating my wife, and uh, she had tagged tagged along with me to an Emerald City Comic Con a bunch of years ago. And uh, you know, you're at a convention like that, and people come up and they they want they, they throw you commissions. Hey, could you draw me a Supergirl? Can you draw me a Batman? And one person came up and said, could you draw me Predator? And my then-girlfriend and my wife said, Predator, that's a really complicated character. He's not going to be able to do that. And I said, sure. And I just banged out a head sketch of a Predator for this guy. Impressed her very much. So <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. amazing. And I wonder if that's in her story of why she, why yeah. she liked you so much. And he could draw a perfect Predator. So she, her story is like, she's like, and he was so proud of that Predator I just had to play along. I was like, that's great, Ron. <laughs> yeah, what's the big deal? But yeah, <laughs> no, it was, it was a fun story. <laughs> Your Predator stuff, you did the original series, which was Concrete Jungle. Then you did um, mm -hmm. Cold War and then you did Dark River. Right. Me as a reader, Don't I fell into... Don't forget booty, Rumi. Don't forget booty. <laughs> <laughs> Aliens vs. Predator booty. That was a little bit later, but you yeah. did... Cold War was my introduction and it was one of the few comics that I read as a kid, I really only read the Dark Horse, Aliens, Predator, and Terminator stuff because I didn't care about superheroes back then. Now right. now I'm all over it, but the the Cold War, it was like you said about the Al Williamson cover. I, wo I was in a comic book store because I'd go sometimes and just pick up an issue, but I didn't care. And it was a Brian Stelfreeze freeze cover, and I was yeah. like, wait, they make Predator comic books? Because I loved those <laughs> movies as a kid. And I sure. remember... I think it was issue three was the first one I read. And it was not only my introduction to your work, but to Predator as a comic, but also into Dark Horse. And there's a mm -hmm. part where Schaefer, the detective who is uh, Dutch's brother, hits a Predator across the face with a helmet and he calls him a son of a bitch. And I was like, <gasps> there's no way my mom knows that this comic has bitch in it, which like shouldn't have mattered because she let me see the movie multiple times, you know. But your work was amazing. and. It like it was a slap in the face 
I'll try to now explain, like you explained before, how how your your Flash Gordon book hit you, but your <laughs> book hit me in such a way that I was kind of a purist. I was a big Star Wars kid, and if you varied too far from the norm, you were changing it too much and didn't like it. But your predators in that story, they all have di- different helmets. Their armor varied slightly. There were some weapons in there that they used that they didn't have in either of the two films at the time, Predator 1 and Predator 2. But it was just enough in that same universe. And again, like we talked about your universe crafting in Trekker, as a kid, I was like, well, it makes sense that they would have different helmets. It makes sense that they would have this. It had, And it was just, it blew me away. And they were ruthless in that story. And it was so fun. And you just drew it in such a fun way. And I remember, I, I got to tell you, my favorite thing, and for, for listeners at home, uh, Mr. Randall and I found each other. I f- I'm not found each other. I'm making it sound like you cared. I found him through <laughs> social media and immediately was like, hey, listen, I love Cold War. Do you have any Cold War pages? <laughs> and eventually he unearthed this one great page of a predator setting a trap and destroying a guy. And it's one of my it really I have a pretty decent art collection. It's one of my favorite pieces, Mr. Randall. It looks beautiful and it. It's just childhood on a page for me. But <laughs> there was a an issue. I forget which issue of Cold War had. Uh, a, a page at the end that was like, "What is the well-dressed predator wearing this season?" And it showed. You, do you know? Do you remember what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. It was like a predator jumping, and it it had labels and outfitted all of his clothes, all of his wardrobe, the helmet, what the helmet could do, the combi spear, and the plasma caster. And I thought that was so freaking cool. And just, I mean, that was one of the books that certainly got me hooked into Predator, but. You nailed that design, and I've seen since you you now sell on your Etsy page. You sell books that have commissions and sketches, and mm-hmm. your predators have only gotten more refined. But it's cool because you have such a great style where you you get an in, you get an idea that these hunt these hunters are different guys. They're individuals who have amassed their armor and their weapons. I just think it's the same. It's the same thing we were talking about before. There's no question here. I'm just gushing at you. I mean, it's back to the, you really do have this costume designer in you that, that really builds these characters out and it's what you bring to them and the style that you bring to them. I mean, think of any great sci-fi character and the accoutrements that go on them. Like that's almost as important as what a badass they are, their personal character, but like good sci-fi has good gadgets and good outfits and good spaceships and good helmets. The predator is such a, a gadget guy because he's always going out he's got you know he's got his utility belt he's got you know his weapons he's got all these different things that go on to him and, and that's such a fun part about designing a predator what are some of your favorite predator like uh, accessories it, it would be a shorter list to say what i don't like about it which is very little i mean i i, I love that shoulder cannon yeah <laughs> that was just i thought it was a great a great idea um I love that. I love the design of his boots that have the, you know, it's almost like a, um, like a hockey player's leggings or something like that. Oh, to protect the, like the, those, to protect the shins kind of? Yeah, to protect, to protect the shins and up to his knees and stuff. Uh, I like that, that crazy uh, little mesh, uh, mesh that he has across his torso that he can hang stuff on like skulls of his victims and things like that. Um, The dreadlocks are really cool. I mean, the whole thing just just conveys, it it really feels like a character, a creature that comes from a civilization, but hasn't lost touch with its feral, you know, hunter sort of aesthetic or or values of the the society too. So the whole thing just, uh, what what makes it work is that it feels like it's a unified sensibility, um, which is what you want to have, I think, when you're designing something. You don't want to see something that feels like it was cobbled together from seven different 
things that this designer thought are cool. Yeah. <laughs> it may it may be that, but the art of the designer is to is to make it all feel homogenized by the way they combine it. And sometimes it's the way it's colored or you modify the the shapes of those pads on the shoulders so they echo what's going on elsewhere in the design on the boots or something like that. So um I love the the face mask, you know, the the, the plate they have on the Predator. Uh, it, it has a cool sort of, imp, you know, implacable quality to it. And it seems, it, it's so sleek and sort of, you know, sci-fi pristine in a way. And then you take it off and you've got this nightmare of a face. So that, yeah. that juxtaposition between something that seems very sort of sleek and sci-fi with something that just seems like your worst nightmare. Um, that that all it takes is removing that mask and you've got a completely different feel to this this whole this whole creature um that's that's just super powerful that and i think great, that, great idea that's something else that you nailed in all of those books is you gave each you know more or less you gave each di- predator a slightly unique and different mask and i'm me and aaron almost got into a, an argument at WonderCon this year <laughs> because we were talking about predator and i was like i've always preferred a mask on predator and he was like like stopped like physically stopped walking and was like what and I was like, no, and it's it's funny because I love those movies, and those movies have an amazingly large place in my heart. But the comic books really fleshed out that world, and a lot of that was was your contribution to that. And I I without criticizing any artist, I feel like a lot of artists don't get the face right. They're missing an important element, or they exaggerate or understate part of it, and it looks too different than what is on the screen. You nailed it. And reading those books, you, I thought you did an amazing job with both Mask On and Mask Off Predators. And that, to me, is the watermark of a good Predator comic. Does he look good, both masked and unmasked? You got it. Chris Warner has it. I'm trying to think of who else really nailed both on and off masks. Yeah. Simon Bisley, I love his stuff and I love his Predator, but he can't draw a Predator face. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, you know, as you guys have accurately summed up, I've, I've worked on a lot of stuff over my career, and, and several things I've worked on have been fall into that category of licensed properties. I've drawn Predators and Aliens, and I've drawn Space Ghosts, and I've drawn Johnny Quest, and I've drawn Star Wars and Star Trek. And and I think, you know, the, the, the way I see that job is exactly what you said. We are telling stories that sort of flesh out those universes. And, and, I want it to look and feel as much as I can, like, like the comic books are just an extension of that of those stories, and and that means the look has to be there. The look and the the texture, like Predator has all these 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 gritty texture patterns going on to give that that world the right feel, and um, so I always I always think that's part of the job. In fact, when I when I started working on, I don't remember now if it was the Cold War or Dark River. It was probably Cold War because that was the first one I did uh, after the Concrete Jungle one, where I came on in the middle of it because Chris was already Chris Warner was already the the first pencil on who'd gotten the whole thing started. But um, and the guy that is that we haven't mentioned yet is the writer, and that's Mark Verheiden. And Mark did wrote all three of those miniseries, and he's gone on to work on things like Battlestar Galactica and stuff like that uh, down in Los Angeles. But <laughs> um, but Mark had a great feel for for those movies and to do he he approached each of those miniseries like it was another movie script that he was writing in the within the predator world and i just thought that he got the tone just right and uh that made it 
easier for me, you know, because if the tone is there in the script, it's easy to just, I'm just following through with that in, in the art that I do. But one thing that Mark did, he was structuring those miniseries like the movie, but which is great, except that it meant like in the first issue, we didn't see the Predator. Right, right. You know, and I said, Mark, a kid's picking up this book. It says Predator right on the cover. <laughs> He's going to want to see the damn Predator in issue one. So, you know, he went back and restructured and, you know, and we, so we had a, at least a, a couple of good shots of the Predator, almost like, you know, you know, teaser images, you know, hang on kids, it's coming sort of thing, you know. Um, but we need to, I needed to let the readers see right off the bat that, that we were going to deliver a really good Predator. And so, so that meant that in the first issue or two, I only had one or two maybe good shots of the Predator. And so I really put everything I could into those because I thought, that's what a lot of people are going to buy this book for. They want that yep. predator, and they want it to look correct. So, um, so I, I was pretty focused on that for those books. <laughs> That's amazing. So, you know, as you mentioned, you you were drawing for those predators, but with your own product, you write, you draw, you you do basically everything. But some, who does the colors for your book? Me. You, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're basically doing everything. What is it like to? Do you still write a script, even though you're the one who's going to draw it too? Do you just, or do you just? freehand and just start doing everything from from the blank page yeah no i'm really old school man i, I write <laughs> i start off with an outline and then i re, and, and i refine the outline two or three times then i write a script and i rewrite the script a time or two yeah. and I, I i like to have it all locked down pretty solidly before i before i start working on the thumbnails now okay. that said i the 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 editor part of me reserves the right to go and and tweak and fine tune Things like the dial. As I'm as I'm drawing a sequence, I'll think, oh no, the character should say this instead, and right. I might even add or or you know, re-block out some event or a little sequence here or there. So I'm not. It's not like it's not carved in stone exactly. But I need to know what's going on in the damn story before I start drawing it, because what happens on page 17 can affect how I have a character enter a room on page five, something like yeah. that. And like I said, I I want this series to move ahead without the sense that there's a there's there's any flab on it i i want a taut muscular story and you can't have that if i don't believe if you're making it up as you go along because you're going to wind up you know going on to something that's going to turn out to be a detour you know sort of go down a bit of a dead end so i i want it all to i want it all to work and hold together so that each page and each panel sort of builds on what came before and points us you know inevitably <laughs> i want a page turn I want people to keep going on. And if it's like, I'm not sure where I'm going, why would they care? You know, I want them to feel like I know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> and I want them to come along for the ride with me. <laughs> it is a great ride. And like you said, there's so many rides we can go on. You've touched so many huge franchises. You have your own franchise. Um, Trekker has some big stuff coming up, right? What, what, where is Trekker right now? What are you, uh, you had mentioned the Kickstarter. What, where are we at with, with Trekker? Well, I've done two Kickstarters so far, so the one coming up will be my third. I was really, really, when I when I launched the first one, you know, Kickstarter is like an all or nothing thing. You either get your goal or mm -hmm. you get nothing. <laughs> so uh, I launched that first campaign. I, I had no idea what had happened, but it funded fast and uh, and went on to make a bunch of stretch goals. So we got to make the book, you know, bigger and put in extra content and stuff. And that was a lot of fun. And then the same thing happened even faster with the second one. So that was great. So so what's happening is uh, the, 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 the series is... is Really, in some ways, just starting to hit its stride as far as the expansion of the worldview. I, I spent a lot of time uh, laying the foundations for that stuff. So now uh, Mercy has – she's sort of like um, 
gone off planet now. She's on this quest. Uh, she, she's gotten some uh, some indications of things from her past, things that, that she didn't know about. And so she wants to find out more about that. And that's going to lead her right into the heart of this conflict between the powers that are shaping the entire <laughs> course of humanity. Um, and those powers do not want her there. But but she has she's going to have a big role to play in things. So each story now is like another stepping stone where, where the stakes and the body count are just going to be rising higher as we go on. Uh, the next, the, the Kickstarter coming up on May 28th is for Trekker Battlefields, where I take my bounty hunter, who, hunter who's used to like, you know, facing off against a, a, a desperate criminal or maybe, you know, a, a shootout with a bunch of street fighters or whatever. And I stick her into the middle of a war. <laughs> so, so she's got armies that she's got to try to contend with now, as opposed to just a, a couple of, you know, a couple of, uh, thieves or murders or something like that. So it, the idea is to try to take a character who is all about, you know, control and being on top of things and always have her somewhat off balance and, and uh, put her through her paces uh, so we can continue to keep the ride a thrilling one. So, And where can we find that? Uh, the, the Kickstarter is going to, I have a, the handiest, easiest URL <laughs> I can think of, which is trekkerkickstarter.com. Uh, and, and that's, uh, I use that same, location for every campaign so if you go there now you'll before the campaign launches it's still a page from the previous campaign but as of may 28th uh you go there and that's the new campaign will be just kicking off right then excellent and for people who want to keep up with you and the other stuff you're working on where can they find you i'm on twitter at just ron underscore randall uh i'm on facebook i'm ron randall on facebook <laughs> um I also have a, a Facebook fan page specifically for Trekker. It's just called Ron Randall's Trekker. I'm on Instagram, so I, I, I do what I can to be ubiquitous so that people can find me. You can also find the Trekker stories. I, I made a webcomic uh, for people who want to check it out. It's trekkercomic.com. I want people to find myself and to find Trekker as readily as possible. I want everybody to be on this ride that wants it. That's amazing, man. Well, yes, to our fans, check out Trekker. If you already are a fan of Trekker, keep an eye out for that new Kickstarter. And if you have not read Trekker, go look it up. It's really fun. If you're into some good sci-fi, if you like a badass bounty hunter traveling across the universe, kicking ass, taking names in that sort of a Buck Rogers, Firefly vein, Trekker is a fun ride and really worth checking out. Ron, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate you. We'd love to have you again. Would you be down to chatting with us another time? Absolutely. This has been great. I love it, and I'd be happy to be back. Awesome. There's man. only like forty five thousand things we could talk about. Right? Like we could, there's, <laughs> yeah. like, there's, we have pages and pages of notes of stuff we could do. Yeah, so we didn't, we didn't get to talk about booty. We didn't get to talk. Like, <laughs> there's so much stuff we could talk about, and it's so awesome to have these these amazing creators like yourself on to hear about your process, to hear about the stuff that influenced you. Maybe some of our audience will learn about something new. Hopefully, discover some of the stuff you've worked on. Uh, I mean. Matt and I could talk about Predator all day long. I mean, I think our audience is like, guys, you talk about Predator like every other episode, but it's so cool. <laughs> what can you do about it? But our audience could keep up with us on our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Launchpad Pod and our website, launchpadpod.com. Guys, we have so much awesome stuff coming out this month. Even though I'm in Atlanta working on Walking Dead, even though Matt's in Los Angeles doing his thing, we're about to have some guests on the show filling in for each other while we're busy. But we will keep bringing you Launchpad Podcast goodness every single week. Don't you worry, guys. We're the Rocketeers. Matt, you want to blast this thing off? Yeah, so Mr. Randall, we got a secret handshake. Okay. <laughs> uh, here's what we do. So, so 
you're in Portland, Rumi is in Georgia, and I'm in Los Angeles. But what you do is <laughs> you come in at it from the side, like a, a side high five. And then when we all clap, we invert our hands, face the, so our, our fingers are pointing towards the ceiling, and then we blast off like a rocket ship, move your hand up, and you make a raspberry noise with your with your mouth. <laughs> right. Okay. That's that's the launch pad. Uh, what do we even call it, Rumi? A, a high it's, a, the hand, it's secret, a, it's handshake. The secret handshake is what we call it. Yeah, it's a secret handshake. It's not a handshake <laughs> though. It's a high five. <laughs> it's a high five. Yeah, it's the. I just did this with Dolph Lundgren the other day, and I was like, I hope he knows that this is a, like I hope he's okay that this is a high five. All right. So ready? <laughs> So put your yeah. hand to the side. Let's swing it in. Three, two, one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. We're the Rocketeers. This is the Launchpad Podcast. Ron Randall in the house. Thank you, sir. We are out. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one.